0: Steve, happy Monday. How's it going, man? Uh good, good. Just uh,
1: fully, whole family and I fully recovered from the dreaded COVID. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dude, we all we had couldn't it last have timed week after. this
0: better, though. Like all of us, for the I know. Whole EXO yeah. crew getting it was great. Yeah, throwing.
1: yeah. We all pat. Uh, well, Pat picked it up, and then we all picked it up from him when we went down to shot show and then came home with it and spread it to my family. And, but uh, yeah, it was pretty easy peasy. Just a couple days, everyone being cold and then uh, back to normal. Yeah. Cool,
0: man. Yeah. So we, we got COVID prior to us hitting the road for show season, which is great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was, it uh, wasn't <laughs> happening now. It was happening then. That's for sure. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's definitely it. happening. I could see being at two trade shows back to back, shaking a thousand hands and not getting it from somebody. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, next week's Hunt Expo kicks off on February 10th, and that will run through the weekend. And then the following week is the Pacific Northwest Sportsman Show, uh, which is in Portland, and we'll be at both of those. So we'll leave links in the show description. Uh, If you guys want to hit those websites, check out any more info on obviously the dates and all that stuff. Tickets, but uh if you're in the area or gonna be at the shows, definitely swing by, say hey, we'll have an exo booth at both and be there the whole time. Be fun. Absolutely. It's uh it's good. Like last year was a nice break having them off for a bit, but it it's gonna be great to actually get out and see people again. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, let's see other kind of like timely news that's been going on uh, in the background. Steve is we have the death hike dates finalized and somewhat of a high level plan put together. I think there's still a ton of details to figure out, but
1: yeah. uh, people are always interested to hear
0: about that. So what's it looking like this year? Uh,
1: yeah, last year I mean it was just kind of every year it's like all right, what can we do next? What's what's exciting um, and you know, one of the thoughts I had was like, let's go travel somewhere. Uh, the, the first place that popped into mind was actually New Zealand, but <laughs> I think that'd be pretty far fetched <laughs> for a lot of guys, just time and cost to get over there. But then I was like, ah, you know, what we could do is Alaska. Uh, so yeah, we're flying up to Anchorage and we're going to go through hike, uh, through the Chugach, um, mountain range. Uh, it's like late June. And it's going to be, what's going to be fun is we're going to, I'm going to build a route. So there's a lot of uh, ice travel. Um, So we're going to be crossing over glaciers um, and uh, it's going to be, you know, just that that's new and different. And uh, none of us, uh, no, nobody in the group's done that before. Right. So there's going to be some added skills to learn and, um, you know, research and it's yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how that comes together
0: from a skills and gear both like what do we end up packing you know because it gets mm. into like harnesses and ropes and uh, just that whole different element. and thankfully we have some connections up there who can help keep an eye on conditions and uh, which is good actually Dave who's a previous podcast guest and if you guys haven't listened to this episode go back I just looked it up to see which one it was but it's episode 268. And, and it was titled hunting lessons from a Marine fighter pilot and mountaineer. Uh, and he lives up in that area and is kind of helping us plan a bit. And so a uh, great resource there to have him on the ground. And again, that was a fantastic podcast. If you guys didn't catch it, go back and check that one out. Um, but yeah, it's like the whole, I mean, that's, Adventure. It's new. It's exciting. It's unknown. It's yeah. pushing comfort levels. That's kind of the whole point, right? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. it would be good, man. What do you, um, do you look at training any differently for this one? I think one thing that stands out that's unique about this is not only the different, uh, place and demands of the terrain and ice and all that, but also that time of year in Alaska, ton of daylight right it's like Mm -hmm. we're going to be able to really get in a lot of time on feet um
1: and probably minimal rest if we wanted to yeah i mean i think it's 24 hours of daylight uh definitely of hiking light enough to hike i think um i don't know yeah i don't see training necessarily any differently uh i literally just the the thing i gotta work on is you know um education on glacier travel what does that look like you know ropes and harnesses and uh helmets and just you know t- like from my understanding we're gonna like tie off in kind of groups of three or four where you're kind of all 10 yards apart and attached to each other in case somebody like falls through a crevice or something uh, a crevasse and um yeah so that that's that that'll be about it um you know it's not like last year with the snowshoe hike that was uh entirely different right because you're hiking you know miles and miles and miles with a five pound snowshoe on your foot. Um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't really thought of anything different other than just, uh, yeah, standard hike training. Yeah.
0: I've been, um, kind of like reinvigorated if you will, on some of the training stuff. Not that I've been burned out, but, um, honestly last summer towards the end of the summer, I just really had the bug to start running a bit again. I've been doing, a lot of hiking and obviously do that year round. And then Ben had doing some other mixed, you know, some lifting and different things. And yeah, dude, just like last summer, I was like, got the bug to run, but at the same time, it was right before hunting season. I wanted to focus on hiking with weight and then throughout season, uh, the, the running I enjoy most is trail running on some pretty rocky and Rudy stuff. And I just didn't want to do it during season and risk, you know, taking a spill, rolling an ankle, something like that and getting hurt mid season. So it wasn't really until December, uh, this past December that I started to run just a little bit again. Uh, and it had, you know, I'd run here and there over the last few years, but not any distance or with any seriousness. And in the last couple months, it's been fun to just be super passionate about getting into something again, which is great. And, uh, to just like, even this, this past weekend on Saturday, I did, did a 10 mile run and it was like 10 degrees outside and started early and getting out with the sunrise. And it was just a gorgeous, gorgeous sunrise. And it's like just one of those weird moments where you just stop and realize how grateful, you know, you are to have the ability to get out and do something like that. So uh, I don't know why I share all that other than to share, just get outside. Like it's mm-hmm. just tough this time of year. and I don't care if you're running, hiking, doing whatever, but I know some guys just kind of hibernate for the winter and, uh, man, if you have the physical ability to get out and use your body, go do it. Cause it's, uh, it's a gift really.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You had a, a cool, oh, it was like Instagram story or something you did about, uh, like you are the, you're, you are the like, um, base of which your daughter will judge all other men or something like that. Uh, I thought oh, that was pretty yeah. cool. I don't know what that, the exact wordage of that was, but um.
0: yeah, I forget what that was. Cause it was something I shared, not something I made uh, okay. and I'm pretty crappy at Instagram. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, basically that idea, right? right. Like you as an example or teaching your daughter, basically what a man is right for good or bad. Right. Uh, and hopefully for good. But I, I think of it in the terms of, uh, and I don't think these were the words used in that that piece, but like basically setting a standard of, I'm um, hopefully setting a really high standard for my daughter of like, here's what a man is, here's what a man does, here's how a man treats you, treats, you know, in this case, her mom, my wife, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how they work, all that stuff, right? And yeah. you apply that to daughters and sons, it's right. obviously for kids, but there's definitely a unique angle to that for a daughter, especially now that I have a 13-year-old daughter, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> crazy, dude. Oh, uh, All right. So, listener questions. This was a good one, Steven. Uh, we can talk for an hour about this, and maybe we should do a full episode on this in the future. But to get the conversation started, I thought it would be good to talk about this. And this guy wrote in, he says... I live in Maryland and have hunted mostly private land in Maryland and Pennsylvania my whole life. I hear podcasts like yours and many others talk about hunting pressure on public land out West. The challenge I have is I don't know what too much hunting pressure really means when it comes to Western public land hunting. I'm used to having other whitetail hunters potentially within a couple hundred yards of me when I'm in my tree stand but that doesn't seem to equate to big country out West. So what is too much hunting pressure? How do you gauge it? Is it five or 50 cars at the trailhead? Is it just how many other hunters you bump into while you're out there? I'm hoping there's a metric I can use to know if, and when I need to move to another spot because there's too much hunting pressure.
1: Hmm. It's a great question. That is a great question. Um, Obviously the answer is it varies Uh, for me. I mean, it sounds a little um, like I don't want to see or know another person is in the country. um, What do you mean by
0: the country though?
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. The country that I'm hunting that day. Um, Mm -hmm. So if I, if I plan to hunt um, two miles, a two mile circle, I don't want to run into another person in that two mile circle. Um, If I'm, you know, backpacking and it's going to be like an eight mile kind of a to B type hunt. Um, yeah. I don't, I mean, yeah, that so, but that's not too much pressure. Um, there certainly can be people in there. I, I think if you're running, if you're just, you know, if you're elk hunting and you go like you're two miles from your truck and during the course of that day, from sunup to sundown, you run into, multiple groups of hunters that's too much pressure right like you just cover mm-hmm. two three miles during the day and first thing in the morning you're ending somebody midday you see another hunter walking by you you know across the mountain or something like that um you know and then that evening you run into another hunter to me that's like okay there's too many people in here um and basically hunting pressure is just they are you know pushing the animals around and they're going to change their behavior and they're going to be harder to hunt and harder to kill. Um, and so the less of that, the better. Now, certainly I've been in, um, Colorado, for example, back in 2017 with born raised guys, um I mean those trailheads were just jammed full of people like truly 50 trucks at this one and 20 trucks at this one and uh and then all of a sudden you just take that and go okay how can I take use that to my advantage where if there's this many hunters accessing this trailhead and there's this many over on this one you know then you're going to pull out a map zoom way out and start looking at the topography and where access is and what where likely escape routes for animals to go find sanctuary and then you're going to go hunt that stuff um so you can definitely use it to your advantage when, when you are like stuck in those situations but in general yeah i just don't like more from a um you know just kind of like a I don't want to say a peaceful hunt but like i want to go out there and like just be engaged with nature and engaged mm-hmm. with the animal that i'm pursuing and not be running at other people so for me yeah one is too many um, certainly, you know, it's, uh, one thing to, you know, see, see another hunter, like wait, you know, two miles away or something like that. But if mm-hmm. I'm out there actively hunting, I just don't want to run into people, which is a huge reason why I started backpack hunting. Um, it wasn't necessarily like have better hunting. It was just to get away from people and have peace and solitude. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's going to change for everybody. But again, if you're just running into multiple hunters during the day, uh, from an elk hunting perspective that would be my like get out of there um from a mule deer hunting perspective you know that yeah that changes entirely too um because uh yeah trying <laughs> like early early season mule deer hunting um you know you, you definitely don't want other hunters in that you know in the basin that you're hunting that's going to potentially push the animal because those are like you know if you're doing it right you invest an entire day into you know the buck you glassed up that morning and you're waiting for him to bed and then you're gonna sneak over there in the afternoon and spend hours waiting for the thermals to switch and sneak down on it and man last thing you want is some some guy walking up the middle of the basin oblivious that there's a great buck bedded above him and bump him out and ruin your hunt um and then you know let's say it's like late rifle uh you know, running into other hunters is, you know, I, I could say like unit 39 here in Idaho is just jammed full of hunters. Um, but to me, that would be much less of a concern than it would be if I was, uh, you know, archery elk hunting, uh, again, just like, well, the more hunters out here, um, they're just going to be pushing the deer around and make them make like those deer are going to make mistakes of, you know, feel like they're forced to, you know, move midday and, We'll, you know go across an opening a clearing you're going to get a, a rifle shot at them so to me that pressure on a rifle hunt like that would uh, not necessarily be a bad thing at all mm-hmm. um yeah i think you just keep going through different styles of hunts and wind pressure is too much but for yeah. whatever reason maybe it's just your eyes most of our you know past experience has been archery elk hunting so that's what i default to when i think about that so i don't know what his yeah Did he specify in his question at all
0: uh, he did mention, uh, El canteen. Um, he didn't, I don't think that he was on right this, well. but he, yeah. he didn't mention that I got the vibe. It was archery. And then he also mentioned, and again, I don't know if he's planning on going here or he's bringing this up because of, do you hear about it so much, but he mentioned Colorado as well. So like elk hunting oh, okay. in Colorado. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. Perfect. But, so. Um, yeah, truly. If you're and, and that, like I said, if you're, if you're running into multiple hunters a day, I'd, I'd find a find an area with less people because that is the, you know, those elk get bumped and pushed the the bulls stop being vocal. Uh, they stop coming to calls. Uh, they're going to be way more apt to go bed in a thick North facing timber hillside and wait until dark and come out and feed in the evening. They're just going to be a lot harder to hunt. You're going to have much better success. Um, you know, I would take an area with lower elk numbers and no pressure, versus higher elk numbers and a lot of pressure. Cause I think you're gonna have a better chance with that, uh, you know, less pressure situation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a, you know, he mentioned in here, I'm hoping there's a metric I can use to know if, and when I need to go to another spot. That's difficult, right? Because it depends on context, not only context of, uh, what you're hunting, what season it is, not knowing, You know, like metrics, he mentioned how many cars at the trailhead. It's like, well, maybe, you know, like maybe that's a really bad sign, but I've hunted in places where there's been a ton of cars at the trailhead and it's like, maybe you can zig where everyone else is zagging, right? Like maybe there's this main trail that everyone's going to be going up, but there's a different pocket of country you can access from this trailhead, probably not via the trail um, where it's still okay, even though there's a lot of cars at the trailhead speaking of Colorado specifically, that's the other thing. And and this isn't unique to Colorado, but definitely relevant to Colorado is assessing. Maybe there's a lot of cars at a trailhead, but how many of those are hunters? Um, there's been a couple of places I've hunted in Colorado where yes, there's hunters, but there's guys fishing. Uh, there's general backpackers. There's people going on a run, a hike, uh, We've even seen horse trailers, assuming it was guides and then come to find out it was people on a recreational horse ride. So, you know, quote unquote, multi-use areas, right? I mean, quite literally, there's a trailhead I've hunted out of where I know for a fact there was five or six different activities happening out of that trailhead. Um, And so you can't just necessarily pull up and go, oh God, there's 25 cars here. We got to get out Um, because you got to consider what are those people doing and where are they going? Um you know another factor that uh, comes to mind to me and I can relate it to a story is how are even the hunters using that area um and so there's a difference in my mind of yes there's people back here let's pretend you're 3 miles from the truck right and you run into some folks what are they doing? How are they hunting? Are they covering all the ground? Um, Did you kind of pass by their backcountry base camp and maybe they're staying really close to camp? Um, So maybe they're not affecting or pressuring animals too much outside of this pocket. Um, And a story that comes to mind is one of my earlier archery elk hunts in Colorado. Our dates overlapped with muzzleloader season a bit, uh, which we knew going into it. Um, we thought we had a pretty smart plan of how to get away from pressure. Uh, we had actually parked in one unit and hiked over into another unit, um, kind of like from this back way and all that stuff. And so we thought, oh, we're going to cut this distance and get away from, uh, pressure and kind of do this overlooked approach. And I think all that actually was, was relevant, but what we found when we got over into the unit that we were hunting Uh, is that there were a couple camps, but they were muzzle loaders who were on a drop camp. And so even though we ran into camps and then also ran into uh, hunters on the first couple of days, we realized that they were staying pretty dang close to camp. They were, you know, going from their wall tent to a meadow in the morning and kind of sitting on the meadow with the muzzle loader and probably going back midday and then coming back out in the evening and you know, just hunting little pockets and staying close to camp. And so even though we ran into folks the first couple days of the hunt, we also had that moment of, all right, well, let's sit back and think about what they're doing, uh, where their presence is, and then what elk may do in response to that. And so we made a plan of, I think elk would seek security here and these hunters aren't going to go here. So let's try this out. Uh, and it turned out to be when we went to that area um, on back to back days through the best elk hunting days I've ever had in the woods uh, from an action perspective. And then we killed a bull on the second day. And so that to me, like that's a unique situation that's different than if, if in the first couple of days we encountered hunters, but they were also running around the mountain and bugling everywhere and covering a ton of, covering a ton of country. That's going to have a much different effect on the elk. Uh, then the guys who were hanging close to ham- camp, camp, kind of sitting meadows and having a really low profile. Um, so that's a difference that comes to mind as well as, okay, you ran into two groups of hunters today, but how were they hunting? Where were they going? Uh, how much was their presence, uh, broadcasted really through the area. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of different, a lot of different ways to look at that. And it, again, this is a topic, uh, we can explore more in the future and maybe, some of the listeners have uh have some good tips to throw out their stories or experiences. So if you do on this uh idea of how much pressure is too much pressure and how do you gauge it, let us know. Send us an email the podcast at xomountengear.com. Steve, uh a pack question, which we don't always do, but this one came through. Um and it was worthwhile to discuss and think through pros and cons. This guy says, should I go with a 3200, Over a 4,800 K3 pack system for a four to five day trip with ultralight
1: backpacking gear? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, I'm just a big, you know, I've said a million times on the podcast. I'd rather, um, I want everything nice and neat and tidy. So the smallest bag you can get away with and still get everything into, um, is the more ideal bag for for me um and that's what i'd rather see people in when you have a bigger bag you tend to stuff it and add add extra items that you don't need and you know all of this stems from personal experience just the lighter my pack is just flat out the hunt is more enjoyable Uh, you know like you're putting on a lot of miles and steep terrain and you know over and under logs and rocky terrain and just you name it the lighter the pack is the more enjoyable it is and it doesn't matter um doesn't matter your fitness level uh it, you know it applies more the more out of shape you are but even if you're in extremely good shape you know five ten pounds you're gonna really truly feel that over the course of a day um and so that that's just always been you know my go-to is as small as possible and obviously you can't um you know there's you can go too light you can go too minimalist you need to uh as our good friend Jeff Bloomquist said on our, our expert roundtable, like find the things that make you comfortable, um, and uh, so you got to you know pack enough stuff that you stay comfortable and able to keep a positive attitude back there. But always, in my mind, keep weight and bulk. Um, you know, because you can have light, light, bulky items, but having that smaller pack, you're just going to be uh, more nimble through the woods, and that's a good thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's never, never, ever, ever, ever can someone argue and say, that's a bad thing, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, unless you've taken it to the extreme and you haven't packed the essential items you need to, to stay comfortable, dry, fed back there. Mm-hmm.
0: I think this one's interesting because he says a four to five day trip and, uh, you know, there's no hard and fast rule here, but in the. Oh, in the product description of a 3200 versus a 4800, we kind of mentioned a 32 going up to three to four days Mm -hmm. and then a 4800 going five to seven days. And so he's kind of bridging that gap with saying four to five. Yeah. The Um, second
1: you said four to five, but then he said ultralight gear. It's like, okay, instantly, if he's doing that, he can get into a 3200 easily. Yes. And that's
0: what I was going to say is those recommendations are like, what's in the description of saying a 3200 is up to three to four. Um, it depends who you are, but I will say they're somewhat conservative, right? And that's on purpose. Um, and guys, yes, with truly ultralight gear, and especially milder, like earlier hunts, especially September, early to mid-October, can probably take a 3200 at least a couple of days beyond what we say in that product description. Um, and so, but that I wanted to highlight that because it is one area where it really can vary based on when you're hunting, where you're hunting and, and what you're packing. And by what you're packing, I mean, things like shelter choice, things like sleep system um, and all that. And those are the types of things that we're, um, we're happy to help with, right? So instead of saying like, here's this hard and fast rule, I would just say, if you're in this boat and kind of considering, just give us a call because that's the easiest thing. And we can go through, you know, here's where you hunt primarily, what you hunt primarily, how you're doing it, what sleeping bag you're using, what shelter you have, and really kind of help make that decision, um, with knowing your scenario specifically. So, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a great point, 32 verse 48. And Steve, as he said, there's a lot of benefits, um, to stay in with the smaller system if it's sufficient for you, for sure. Um, all right. One final question, listener question. And again, guys, we're always happy to dive into these. So any question you have, whether it's gear tactics, whatever, just shoot us that email. We'll get out on the list for a future Monday minute. Um, but we'll wrap up today with this one. Would you consider a floorless tarp tent with a stove as a do it all shelter? Mm, Do it all in the lower 48. Yeah, I still think no, like even in the lower 48, I, so I will say yes, it can be, but yeah. I don't think it's ideal by any means. Um, and because when I hear floorless tarp tent with a stove, meaning you're not always going to pack the stove, but you have a, a shelter that stove capable that takes space, man. Like you take a, uh, four five man tent, but you start throwing in like stove and really that's going to sleep like two, maybe three guys when you're running a stove. Um, and then that same shelter, that's, that was a four to five man shelter without the stove. That's just a big shelter. Um, you know, so saying it's a do it all, like meaning I'm going to take it on yeah. summer backpacking trips or summer scouting trips or early archery, uh, backpack hunts or things like that. Like, no, it's not ideal. There's so many better options out there. Yeah. Um, so for me, I do, I do think shelter is one of the areas where having options, if you cannot at all swing, it is really, really beneficial. Um, so I think you can get away with like finding your favorite pair of boots that are going to work in 90 plus percent of the conditions Uh, having one pack system that you can do everything with Uh, you could say the same thing about like weapons, rifles, like find one that's great for you, no matter whether you're hunting bear, elk or deer, whatever. Uh, But shelter is one of those ones, man, where I really think having at least a couple options is just really, really beneficial when you say do it all. And again, that depends on how much you're getting out. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean the biggest like you are getting at the, the biggest thing with like most floorless shelters that are gonna have a stove are gonna be like a TP style, um, and the the biggest downside of that, which we've talked about a lot, is just the footprint size and where you're gonna be able to pitch that. You're just severely limiting the available campsites to yourself if you're in you know very mountainous terrain. Um, I guess, uh going back to my sheep hunt in the Frank church this last year like there was uh I mean we had we struggled at times to find two places for two one man tent tents to go um if we had had a TP oh, holy crap that would have uh I mean we would have walked I mean not joking you know three or four extra miles in the course of that trip you know come evening time to find a place to camp or you would be um you would Know that limitation and know it would affect your hunt, right? Like you're, it's like two hours until dark, but you walk across a place like, oh man, we could pitch the tent here. Uh, if we keep going, it doesn't look very good up there. So you would, you know, potentially affect the outcome of your hunt. Um, I guess it could be, you know, you could get lucky and it could be in a good way, but I think anytime you're placing limits on yourself and where you can sleep, that's not a good theme. So, um, but at the same time, you got a late season hunt, you know, you're going to hike in there four miles, you know, exactly where you're going. You know, there's this big flat meadow, um, you know, that floorless shelter with a stove is going to be fantastic once you get that thing set up and you're just going to leave it up for the whole duration of the trip. Um, so there's some pros and cons for sure. Uh, in an ideal world, maybe uh, you and your hunting buddy, like the one guy buys the the floorless shelter and stove option. Another guy has a, you know, a bomber, you know, Hilleberg two-man tent or something that you can kind of take more places. Um, yeah, there's definitely... Yeah. Uh, as much as there's cons to the bivy sack and tarp setup, the versatility of that um, is just so stinking fantastic that it's tough to beat.
0: Yeah, I think maybe part of part of like the way I see this question too is hmm, I don't want to say that floorless shelters with stoves are overrated. I think there's a massive benefit to them in select circumstances, Mm -hmm. but I just feel like is, I don't, and maybe it's just like, I have a very outsider opinion on this, looking at what I see, right? Like podcast questions and people posting on Facebook groups and forums and whatever. And there's like so many guys going this direction that I somewhat question are this many people hunting in those conditions where this shelter is like, that's what it's made for. Right. Like that, Late season, crappy weather, you need a stove, quote unquote need, like in air quotes, the stove's beneficial, let's put it that way. But I see so much momentum going to those styles of shelters, which is fine. I have nothing against them. I just question, are those guys using it for what it's intended for? Or are they doing it, you know, maybe 5% of the time? Mm -hmm. Whereas the other 95% of the time, they'd just be much better off with something Smaller, simpler, lighter, you know, what I mean, there's just like, yeah, I don't know, I just I'm curious about that and again, it's a very outsider opinion, um, it just seems like there's a ton of interest in them, and I don't always see guys using them when they're needed. We'll put it that way,
1: yeah, yeah, so, yeah. very judgmental of me though, I know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean it's, um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely just you know, more evolved into the camp of like, keep it simple. And I'd rather deal with a little bit of uncomfortableness at times in the, uh, you know, in the interest of just keeping things simple and easy to use. So, yeah.
0: and I will say a hundred percent, this is massively dictated. And you mentioned this, Steve, but just to highlight massively dictated on how you're hunting. Meaning if you were the guy who's like, you know, you and your buddy pack in two, three, four, five, six, I don't care how many miles and set up a base camp, then yes, a floor shelter, um, even makes sense when you don't need a stove. Right. And, and we used to do this more. My buddy, Jared and I, the first several years we hunted archery elk, it was pack in, set up a seek outside, uh, Cimarron and basically hunt out of that for usually three to four days, sometimes longer, um, or sometimes we're moving after three to four days. So that style of hunt is going to be more beneficial for that style of shelter. Um, But if you're more mobile, if you're, you know, bouncing around, if you're dealing with hunting pressure, like we talked about earlier, and maybe going in for like, Hey, I'm going to go in here for an overnight or for two to three days, gauge pressure, et cetera, move around a lot. um, You don't want to be dealing with finding the space and even the time of setup of these larger shelters when you can much more easily throw up a quicker, smaller system, uh, in minutes and just be much more mobile. So again, that's a huge factor in shelter choices, your hunt stop. Cool guys. Uh, appreciate you tuned in as always, uh, as I mentioned before, if you have any questions for us for a future Monday minute, just send that to podcast exomountaingear.com. Uh, once again, check out the links in the show description for the hunt expo Pacific Northwest sportsman show, and hope to see many of you guys soon. Uh, And then we'll be back this Wednesday with a full length podcast episode. So if you haven't yet hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app to receive all future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.